Welcome to the New Chicago Way podcast. Today, we're talking about policing. Policing and violence are complex issues that affect every city, not just Chicago. But in Chicago, there is a central question that seems to always be looming, and that is civilian oversight of policing. Currently, we have offices that seem to offer this in name only, but at the end of the day, those who oversee policing in the city of Chicago, all the controversy and problems uh, and even successes that come along with it are the mayor and the police chief. Today, we're talking with Richard T. Fank. He's the executive director of the LA Police Commission, and that's their body for civilian oversight of policing. We're also talking with Ted Pearson of the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. He's an activist who has been working on this topic in Chicago for years. Enjoy the conversation. Richard T. Fink and Ted Pearson, welcome to the new Chicago Way podcast. Thanks so much for being on. You're very welcome. Thanks for having us. Richard, I thought uh, we would start with you. I was just wondering if you could talk briefly about, obviously, we talk a lot in our chapter in the book about Los Angeles's policing reputation um, and effectiveness being just as, just as uh, conspicuous in the wake of Rodney King as Chicago is now. And there's been really an incredible transformation in terms of the governance of police uh, and outcomes. And I was wondering if you could shed some light on that. Sure. The uh, Board of Police Commissioners in Los Angeles has been in existence for almost 100 years. Uh, It is made up currently of five members of the community who are appointed by the mayor, confirmed by the city council, and they become, in the city charter, the head of the Los Angeles Police Department. They are the policy-making body of the department and the chief of police who reports to the Board of Police Commissioners, along with myself and our inspector general. Uh, The chief is the operating officer of the department for all intents and purposes. Commission establishes policy, chief implements policy, and is responsible for the day-to-day operations. In June of 2001, the city entered into a federal consent decree, which was in effect for um, uh, from June of 2001 through uh, July of 2011, when we then transitioned to a transition agreement for two years, and in July of 2013, that process was concluded after 12 years. And the transition of the department then uh, is uh, night and day. Uh, the department uh, moved to a much more collaborative department with the community. Uh, clearly, uh, the efforts in, in restructuring the organization, uh, establishing outreach to the community, and internal uh, checks and controls on the internal uh, operation of the department, training, accountability, discipline, investigations of incidents that occur, uh, made that transition possible. And uh, again, I've been here since uh, December of 2003. and can tell you in that uh, almost uh, 16 years I've been here, the transition from when I got here to today, it's a totally different department. And without the federal consent decree and the, the leadership of, of the the Board of Police Commissioners and uh, Chief uh, Bill Bratton and followed by Chief uh, uh, Charlie Beck and now succeeded by Chief Mike Moore, those transitions would not have been part of the culture of the department. So it is just a totally changed department. 
I'm curious a bit about, we talked a bit about sort of the mayor's involvement in appointing those members, and then of course the city council, which is robust and acts as a check on the mayor oftentimes in Los Angeles, then confirms those members. After that point, Richard, what involvement does the mayor really have in policing in the city of Los Angeles? Well, clearly the, the mayor is is always going to have a role in the policing in Los Angeles. The mayor and the chief uh, have very frequent meetings along with the president of the Board of Police Commissioners. There is involvement in discussion about mayor's priorities as uh, he would want to move the city in certain directions, and if that involves a law enforcement component, the chief of police is involved in that. But as to the day-to-day -day oversight and operation of the department and direction of to the department, uh, that that does, does not occur. There's a deputy mayor for public safety who has responsibility for oversight of emergency management, uh, fire department, and police department. Uh, but uh, from a, a, a daily oversight of the department, that is left to the uh, uh, the Board of Police Commissioners who establish policy, make policy for the department, and basically are involved in the day-to-day -day oversight. And Richard, this is sort of the I, I, my last kind of question for you, and we can switch to Ted's perspective uh, here in Chicago. But in Chicago, as, as Ted can certainly speak to uh, when it comes to policing and a lot of other aspects of city government, not just police, but fire and, and laborers and um, really anyone, we oftentimes have law via collective bargaining agreement. And California takes a very different approach than we do here with, you know, the Public Safety Peace Officers Bill of Rights um, at the state level that kind of takes that out of the local collective bargaining process. Could you talk a little bit about the role of collective bargaining in effective policing? Sure. And, well, as you mentioned, in California, the uh, the state uh, peace officers bill of rights is the is the leading document in that and that the city would have to comply with that as to the collective bargaining in the city it is generally going to be about wages and benefits it uh, very little has to do with police operations. Uh, there will be some things in there regarding uh, uh, work schedules and those type of things but as to overall giving directions to the chief of police about how the department can police the city, uh, et cetera, that, that is just not part of our collective bargaining process. The union are, is more concerned about wages and benefits rather than the uh, overall daily operation of the department. And Ted, I'm curious on, on your perspective on wh what that kind of negotiation between the mayor um, and the FOP Fraternal Order of Police in Chicago, what kind of effects that has on policing in, in Chicago, which doesn't have those kind of state level uh, laws? Well, in Chicago and in Illinois, there's also a police bill of rights, which is, which is established by statute, by state statute. And the uh, contract of the, of the Fraternal Order of Police includes that and goes beyond it uh, to give the police rights that uh, that nobody else has. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the situation here is very similar to what it sounds like the situation in Los Angeles is, except that in addition to a, a, a mayor-appointed police board, which is responsible for policy and for uh, rules and stuff like that, uh, and also has the authority to uh, discipline police officers. Um, th there's also a civilian office of police accountability, which is also appointed by the mayor uh, to examine complaints of police abuses and, and, and shootings and and, uh, and anything that that uh, shootings and tasing, tasings and any and any other issues complaints regarding the police are routed to the internal affairs division of the police department itself. 
the result of this is that that really uh, I, I would say the the biggest difference based on what uh, uh, Richard has said between Chicago and Los Angeles is that LA seems to be a more stable situation. They've had a lot of change at the top in the police department and in the police board and in the civilian office of police accountability, which is actually fairly new because it just replaced the independent police review authority, which was created a few years before uh, now. And, and that in, in itself replaced the office of professional standards, which was in the police department before. Uh, the, the, the bottom line, however, is that uh, that nothing really has changed, that, that the police still uh, shoot and kill a large number of people relatively. In fact, uh, although I have to say I looked at the figures on the Washington Post database, and it appears that Los Angeles actually shoots and kills about twice as many people as, as Chicago police do. Um, but regardless, Chicago, the community in Chicago has taken up the demand for community control of the police in a very big way, since the, uh, uh, especially since the murder of Laquan McDonald in, in a few years ago. Um, and our organization is part of that movement, and we've proposed, and, and, and it's gotten very broad support, uh, a civilian police accountability council to replace the existing structure of the police board, COPA, and uh, the IAD it would be an elected body instead of appointed, and um, it would have all of the authority that the current structure has, plus the authority to actually appoint the police superintendent. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, it, well, there's a lot of other details, but that, that's the main difference. Ted, uh, Ted, and, this and is... And that's what we're proposing, and a lot of people are supporting that, so... Uh, uh, that's sort of in a nutshell. Ted, this is Ed Backrack, and I wanted to go a little bit further with that. Uh, is the the gist of your proposal really to take the control of this police civilian police accountability out of the hands of the mayor? Is that the gist of yes. it? Yes. Yeah. And so as we were studying the Los Angeles Police Commission— uh, we we saw that it had a lot of safeguards in there. It didn't take things completely out of the control of the mayor, but quite a bit. I mean, the mayor would have trouble removing somebody from the police commission in Los Angeles uh, because they can appeal it to the city council. But Richard, uh, what I'd like to ask you, uh, we in the book were so admiring of the Los Angeles Police Commission, but that same commission structure was there when the police department reached its nadir. So, is is that structure a good structure? Is it got its flaws? Was it changed in light of the consent decree? Was that question for me? I'm sorry, yes. there was some yeah. background noise. I couldn't hear it. Yes, that, Richard. that's question for you, Richard. Mm -hmm. That was the mayor of Chicago calling. He's asking you to, <laughs> to get off the podcast. Uh, as to the, the structure and the role of the police commission, no, there was no changes that occurred as a result of the federal consent decree. I, I believe what occurred that was different is there became a clear focus on the fact that the Board of Police Commissioners was seen by the federal judge and by the federal monitor as the entity when this consent decree was concluded that it was their responsibility to ensure that another consent decree never occurred again. 
and uh, the focus of the commission became much more involved in the oversight of the department on, on all levels. And that would be the only tra only change, I believe, in, in the structure. There were some minor structures that occurred as to the selection of the chief of police that were in the early 90s as a result of the uh, uh, the civil unrest following the Rodney King verdict. Uh, that's when the position of executive director was created and the position of inspector general was created and our, our offices were staffed. But I believe that... Um, during the consent decree, the big change was the the focus of the police commission assuming the role of the federal monitor and the federal judge when the consent decree was over. And one of the key parts of the federal monitor's final report of the consent decree was that now that they have concluded their work, it will be up to succeeding mayors and police commission members as to there be no slippage going back again for the LAPD. And that certainly has not been the case in the time that we have been out of the, the consent decree now for almost six years. So a uh, couple of uh, one observation and then a couple more questions. It does appear that there were some significant enhancements of the police commission in the early 90s. And that is the creation of your position as well as uh, having a robust IG function uh, right. within the police commission reporting up to those civilian commissioners. Those must not have been in existence prior to that. Is that correct? That's correct. What, what was in place before then, there was no inspector general at all. And the position that I had, I occupy now, was actually a command staff position assigned by the chief of police to oversee the police commission. So it was the fox watching the hen house, basically, and that was one of the key features that the change that was recommended by the Christopher Commission in the early 90s was that uh, my position should be a civilian employee, not reporting to the chief of police, a member of the department with staff assigned to my office who does not report to the chief of police, and then ultimately the inspector general with the same requirements. A civilian uh, not reporting to the department and the staff members assigned to his office uh, not reporting to the department either. I see. Very, very good structures. So a couple of comments about consent decree, and I, I do want to go back to a topic that Austin mentioned. Uh, uh, we now have a consent decree, a 232-page consent decree. But like our state peace officer's Bill of Rights, uh, nothing in the consent decree shall contravene any collective bargaining agreement between the police and the city. And you don't have anything like that in your con – or you did not have anything like that in your consent decree. Is that correct, Richard? Uh, that's correct. There was nothing about the uh, the collective bargaining agreement at all in, in our uh, mm -hmm. consent decree. It was, it was all about operations of the department. Uh, the union became uh, involved in the consent decree because it did have an impact on working conditions, but that was just to be um, an intervener was the term that was used, but they uh, ultimately were very cooperative in the process. I mean, there were some areas in the consent decree where they took some exceptions to requiring financial disclosure of officers assigned to gang units and to uh, uh, narcotic units, but through working with the commission and working through the courts and with the federal monitor, we were able to get that resolved, and that requirement continues to today. So, uh, But nothing as far as outlining any requirements that the uh, consent decree had to have in their memorandums of understanding. 
Now, a lot of people in Chicago feel or say that uh, the policing problem is more or less solved because we have this consent decree. But you can fail a consent decree, can't you? Well, you, you can, but I, I think the, the consent decree is, is a roadmap for succession, I'm sorry, for success and for change. Uh, that roadmap is only going to be as successful as the leadership who are charged with implementing that, uh, the political forces that fund that to make sure that the things that are necessary to make that happen occur. Uh, it's just a roadmap. If people don't want to follow that roadmap, they're not going to be successful. And, uh, you know, in our case, it took a, a committed commission, a committed council, committed mayor, and a committed chief of police with funding and the appropriate efforts to go forward and, and make the changes. And um, over a period of time, they, they occurred. Were, were there some, uh, you know, problems along the way? Of course there were. But, and were there some setbacks? Of course. But uh, at the end of the day, it was all pushing it forward. And I think that um, it was under the leadership of, of all those entities I spoke about, both within the department and external to the elected body. Ted, I'm curious. Can, can, can I say yeah, something yeah. here about Chicago? Yeah, I'm curious what you think about, you know, the feder- our consent decree. Obviously, it doesn't establish the uh, civilian oversight that your group has been pushing. But do you think, what do you think, if any, could be the positive effects of, of federal oversight of policing in Chicago? Well, for, first of all, the, the consent decree doesn't really change very much. It it, it adopts a number of reforms, and, and uh, but it depends entirely on the police department to implement them and, and, and the city. Uh, and some of them actually will run afoul of the contract with, between the FOP and the city. Right. Uh, and, and the big difference between what we're proposing and all of these other proposals, including the consent decree, is that the council, the, this, the Civilian Police Accountability Council, would actually negotiate the contract with the FOP instead of the city uh, corporation council and, and law department. Uh, and it would be based on input from the communities because the elected representatives would receive that input. They would, each, each one would have an office in the community that they're elected from where they would receive complaints and have meetings and discussions. And it would be a much broader democracy involved in, in the actual uh, implementation of both the consent decree and the development of a new contract <clears throat> with the police union. Um, the current contract really sets up a situation in which the police are, have virtual carte blanche. They're, they're, they can do anything they want, and they're, they're so heavily protected uh, from any kind of prosecution that, or, or discipline that, uh, that, they, that they act as if they are a law unto themselves, and, and they're deeply resented by many people, especially in communities of black and brown people, where, uh, where they just ride roughshod over the rights of the people. Uh, and that's reflected in the number of people that they've killed, uh, the, the number of false arrests and wrongful convictions that have taken place based on tortured confessions. Uh, Chicago is the torture capital of the country when it comes to police torture. Uh, and, uh, and people are demanding a change, and, and these these uh, the setup that we have now, which very closely mirrors what it sounds like is in Los Angeles, is just not doing a job. Uh, it's just providing more and more cover-up for, for police crimes. Ted, that, Ted, 
Yes, Ted. So uh, your organization has this far-reaching proposal for a police commission. Uh, that's what I call it. You call it a council. Uh, there is another community group, uh, the Grassroots Alliance for Police Accountability, that has uh, another measure. And I think uh, some uh, members of the public in Chicago are a little confused about the difference. Could you uh, briefly distinguish your proposal from what their proposal is? Yeah, well, the, <clears throat> their proposal also calls for election of a council uh, from the police districts, but then that council in turn elects another council of a much smaller body that then has uh, some authority over the police board, the, the COPA, and the IAD. Uh, it doesn't really change the structure at all, uh, but it does provide some greater democratic input from the communities into that structure. It still depends entirely on the mayor for approval and the city council. Everything has to go through the mayor and the city council. And only in the cases where the mayor absolutely refuses to abide by proposals made by that uh, council would, would the council have the authority to insist on, on uh, its position. Um, where, whereas your, whereas your, your, your view, at least, it doesn't really change very much. It does provide the, the, a fig leaf of the democracy and, and election. Uh, of a body that will in turn appoint another body. It's, it, it adds several layers of bureaucracy to the existing bureaucracy without really changing very much. Mm -hmm. One thing I wonder about with your council, uh, but I, I want to come back and, and, and build a context for this with Richard, uh, your police commissioners, you have five police commissioners, is that correct? That's correct. And how, how many hours a week do they work uh, in their job as a police commissioner? How many days a week? Well, they, they are here generally uh, all day on a Tuesday every week because that's when our commission meetings take place. So, uh, And then uh, they will have periodic meetings during the week. Uh, the president of the commission, which is a rotating position elected by the body, um, will have more hours that they will spend. But I would say on average, with the preparation of reading the agenda materials and reading the, the cases that are going to be considered in closed session, and those would be officer-involved shooting cases and other uh, deadly use of force cases, um, the president probably puts in at least 20 hours a week, and the other commissioners, I would say, 10 to 15 hours on average. You know, again, some, some weeks could be more, some could be less. And they're compensated. They are not compensated at all. They receive zero compensation. I see. And, and in Chicago, the, the council that we're proposing, all of the elected representatives would be full-time. Uh, they would be paid the same amount as aldermen are paid. And they would have staffs of investigators and, and others who can help them uh, carry out their duties in the, in the district. So that's a, a, a very big difference. Mm -hmm. one, one other recommendation we make in this chapter, uh, and it, it kind of... Uh, it, it involves not only policing but also settlements, which are directly related to it, is the idea of an elected city attorney. You have one in Los Angeles. Uh, is that correct, Richard? Uh, yes, our city attorney is elected to a four-year term. Yeah. And could you conceive of a structure where you did not have that and the city attorney worked for the mayor in the mayor's office? Um, or would it make any difference in your mind? In this city, I, I think it would be uh, difficult because the fact that their their uh, terms of office typically with the mayor's appointees, 
would transition out with the mayor. So you would have less continuity in an office, I think. And um, the independence that the elected city attorney has uh, in in light of the uh, council members, we have 15 council members. I know you have Alderman and many more than that. And the mayor, I, I think the independent elected city attorney in the construct of Los Angeles is a far more efficient structure than having the mayor appoint the city attorney. Mm-hmm. Ted, have you have you thought about this, and is the is this uh, concept anywhere in your literature? Well, I mean, in general, elections are better, uh, it, it, but I don't think in this case it would make a whole lot of difference. That the the city attorney, I mean, our our proposal would really remove the city attorney from most of these uh, negotiations, and and. Um, you know, I, I don't think it would make a big difference. But in general, we we tend to favor the more election, the better. The more the more people elected, the more officials are directly responsible to the people who elect them, the better things usually are. Mm-hmm. Uh, the final fact that I I just want to bring up, and I'd like to hear from from both of you, uh, as as we point out in the book in in 2016, which admittedly was the very worst year for. Chicago in terms of homicides. The combined homicide rate uh, of Chicago was five times that of, of New York and Los Angeles. And and yet, uh, in the same year, Chicago had twice as many patrolmen per capita as Los Angeles. Uh, Richard, could you comment on, on how you're able to keep the homicide rate down with half the number of cops on the street? Well, I, I think it gets to the degree of violence overall. Uh, if you go back to the, the 1990s in Los Angeles, and we were over 1,000 homicides a year during the, the, the real heat of the uh, the cocaine uh, PCP uh, drug wars that were occurring in, in the city, uh, all driven by gang warfare predominantly. And then over time, with that... Uh, drug war not being as as great as it was, a focus on enforcement of of gangs and diversion of of young people and prevention of gangs, but a big focus on firearms uh, and removing firearms from the street, uh, making arrests for people with firearms, and that that effort in California through the state legislature on prohibiting firearms of certain types, assault weapons, etc., has had a tremendous impact to where the department has seen a, a reduction in in homicides, a reduction in persons shot, and that all I think is a combination of a variety of factors. Uh, better community relations, working with the community and partnership with the community, community taking some ownership of, of their neighborhoods and working with the police, uh, attempting to get firearms off of the street, Focusing on those individuals of, with a propensity for violence has been a real success in reducing those those uh, homicides. The other key to that, though, is the the clearance rate on homicides. With that partnership with the community, being able to have a high clearance rate of homicides because people will talk to you and and talk with the officers investigating the cases, so they are able to bring the individuals who've committed the homicide to justice. But I, I think the big issue for us has been uh, the the Gun buyback programs we've had, I think we've averaged about 2,000 guns a year we buy back, and then the uh, the results of, of enforcement of taking weapons off the street. Ted, to the extent that the clearance rate is a proxy for trust of law enforcement, how is Chicago faring? 
pretty poorly. I think our clearance rate, I've seen different figures, some as high as, as 30%, some as low as, as 10%. Uh, I'm not sure what the actual clearance rate is, but suffice it to say that the overwhelming majority of homicides in Chicago are unsolved. And fundamentally, it's a problem of, of the breakdown in trust between the community and the police. As long as the community views the police as their enemy, they're not going to cooperate. As long as the police act like an enemy when, they, when they're called, they're not going to get cooperation. There's so many cases of people who call the police only to have their own members of the family arrested or shot or killed, even in some cases, by the police who they called for help. Instead of getting help, they get, they get you know, it's horrible. Uh, people who talk to the police... Uh, the police, it gets around, and, and so people are afraid to talk to the police because the people they're talking about always find out about it. Uh, I think the low clearance rate really is sort of a, a, a proxy for the, for the total breakdown in trust between the community and the police. So, Ted, and, uh, and that's why community control of the police is, is needed to end that situation, and I think that'll do more to reduce violence than, than any other single proposal. Now, all the other proposals that Richard talked about are, are very important, uh, but if they are implemented with the support of the community and the involvement of the community, they'll make a much bigger difference than when they're from the top down. Yeah, I, again, community control of the police is really the key to solving most of these problems. And the, the, the point that Ted mentioned is, is the same point here in Los Angeles. It's all about community trust. And, you know, we have our challenges with that in certain segments of the community, and, and that we're not going to shy away from that. But there's continuing efforts to work through those issues because that is the key to working together in partnership to solve crime, to reduce the opportunity for crime to occur. And we've had a, a number of areas in the city where we've implemented what we call uh, community safety partnerships, and they've predominantly been in our, in our, our uh, housing projects. And we've had some housing projects in Watts and other areas of the cities that, city that went for over a year without a homicide occurring, where in the past there would be double-digit homicide numbers. And all of that occurred by partnership, working with um, the housing authority and working with the residents there to develop, you know, trust where we have in in South Los Angeles one of our housing projects. The uh, the police officers who are assigned there and they're, they're the same officers are assigned to those those housing projects. Uh, they they put together the first Girl Scout program in those housing projects. Pop Warner football teams, all kinds of things that never took place before in an effort to build community trust in those areas, and that's why the crime has gone down. And that's just a key piece that I think people don't talk about all the time is it's about trust. And if the community doesn't trust the police, they're not going to call them because they know when they come they're not going to treat them fair and with respect, and the outcome might not be good. So, Ted, uh, knowing that they uh, operate with half as many cops on the street per capita in Los Angeles as Chicago, and yet the narrative uh, out of City Hall is we need to hire more cops, do you think we need to hire more cops? No, I don't think it's, a, it's not the number of cops. It's who the cops are and how they act. That's the problem. I see. Mm -hmm. I think we could get along with a lot fewer cops if, they, if we had community control of the police. Mm-hmm. Final question for you, Richard. Uh, how often does somebody from Chicago call you up to ask you about policing in Los Angeles? 
Well, I, I know that uh, uh, the department, the LAPD, has had uh, one of our deputy chiefs has spent some significant time back in Chicago with uh, uh, the department there looking at uh, uh, our version of crime, uh, CompStat, as we call it, for identifying the areas where crime is occurring and ensuring resources are deployed where crime is occurring. But as to calling my office and speaking with me, other than the conversations you and, you and I have had, Ed, as you researched your book, and then uh, today I've had uh, some conversations with the uh, uh, the Grassroots Alliance folks that you spoke about earlier when they were doing their research on, on the Los Angeles Commission model, uh, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Ted, any final comments? What have we uh, not asked that we should have? Anything you would like to say that we didn't touch on? Well, I, I think we've covered it pretty well. I, I would just reiterate that, that community control of the police is really the key to solving most of these problems. Richard, any final thoughts? No, it's just been, been a pleasure. I, I think that uh, in many ways uh, Los Angeles is far different than Chicago and in many ways that, that we're similar. You know, I, I read the papers about Chicago and uh, et cetera. I think uh, one of the significant challenges you all face is, is with the gun violence that, that you have. And, you know, those kind of things are just um, very difficult. And I think that to get to the end of those solutions, you need to have trust within the police department and the community and whatever that mechanism that works in the city of Chicago, it might not be the Los Angeles mechanism, but a mechanism has to be put in place to where the police and the, the community can work in partnership to solve those crimes and to prevent that type of violence from occurring. Richard T. Fink, Executive Director for the LA Board of Police Commissioners, and Ted Pearson of the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Enjoyed you. it. Have a good day.